0: Praise the Lord. Sabbath by Sabbath, we have the privilege of a very enriching experience as we come here to gather with each other, to bless each other. You know, you just do not want to take for granted the amazing offerings of music that are are held so closely to so many in this church that they share so freely. And by the way, um, I was listening to the Suncoast singers practicing one of their songs for this afternoon for the Strong Tower radio experience. Um, I was thinking to myself while I was listening, uh, it would be worth being here just to hear that one song they were singing. I want to invite you to come back this this afternoon, early this evening, and share that time together. You will be richly blessed. But we don't motivate ourselves primarily just how we get richly blessed. We come to richly bless. Amen? And this is part of our work. And to strengthen the hands of those that are serving, uh, I want to tell you through the years as your, one of your pastors, uh, when I've gotten up to preach at evangelistic events and other Uh, non-Sabbath morning appointments, and the church has so many people in it. I can't tell you what that does um, to encourage the people that are leading out. So I want to highly encourage you. This is the apple of God's eye, the church. It is enfeebled and defective as it may be. It's still the one object of his supreme regard. And you're a child of God, and you're in this church, And I just really want to encourage you, may you bless each other and may you come to be a blessing. And in turn, you will receive a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope of sunshine on this day after a week of clouds. And I pray, Lord, shine into our hearts and may there be sunshine in our soul. Uh, Bless those that are carrying burdens, grieving loss. And I pray, Lord, bless those that are rejoicing. May their fellowship be such as that they can take courage from each other as it's given from you. And now bless us as we look into the life of those who are part of the first exodus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is a series I'm beginning, entitled Egypt in the Rearview Mirror. And uh, certainly before the Egyptians released the Israelites, there was a lot of trauma and certainly before the Israelites were ready to go, there was a lot of trauma. spirit of prophecy will tell us that Israel was not ready for emancipation. And I fear that on the verge of Jesus' second coming that we will see, need to see, as much as none of us want the trauma, elements of deliverance that are really about readiness to receive what God wants to give so as we start this series out of the book of exodus not only out of the book of exodus but out of the book of exodus i want us to make a prayerful journey with jesus that he could do whatever he wanted to remove egypt from our hearts and that we as a people would understand our great duty and our great destiny for earth's final call for deliverance we are seventh day adventist christians most of us gathered here today if you're not I want to highly encourage you to make a journey of understanding whether or not these three angels, the angel that calls to worship, the angel that warns of a fallen religious system, and the angel that warns of the final mark of the evil one, the mark of the beast. This is worth understanding. We have a duty and a destiny to the rest of the world, and we are to strengthen ourselves individually and as a church by sitting at the feet of Jesus. And as we start this journey, that's where I'm longing to go. Well, this morning I want to talk with you about one of the most unfortunate inventions of all the ages. Uh, One that brought personal trauma to me, and this generation no longer needs to be traumatized by. And that's training wheels. How many of you rode a bike as a child that had training wheels on them? How many of you were fortunate enough to have a bike? Um, We take it for granted now. They're produced... Uh, We can buy them for pennies on the dollar at Goodwill or neighbor-to-neighbor or wherever it might be. But I consider one of the most unfortunate things ever designed in the course of child development and happiness to be a training wheel. Because training wheels don't really teach you how to ride a bike. They teach you how to depend on training wheels. And uh, when you take the training wheels off, there is trauma. And uh, as a boy, I can remember the day my training wheels came off. I I wasn't watching when they were taken off. I was just required to participate in an exercise of uh, what I considered almost childlike abuse. As my mother at one end of the sidewalk and my Aunt Patty at the other end of the sidewalk began doing this little walk alongside of the bike with me on it, all of a sudden, let go. And I wobbled, and I fell, and I shed tears, and I wanted to be done. And uh, as I have shared with you through the years, my wonderful mother was not quite willing to cooperate. They resorted to grapes, which was a delicacy and much rarer uh, in the days of my childhood. It wasn't like we could buy them as inexpensively. And after much trauma, uh, they decided to suspend the session. For those of you who haven't watched children on bikes as of late, uh, there is a new movement to abandon training wheels, and uh, they actually abandon the pedals, well, the form of the pedals and the chains, and kids go around on bikes where they get to lift up their legs, and they're balancing like right from the very beginning, but they can put their legs back down. And these bikes without training wheels actually are allowing the children to get a sense of what... Balancing on two pneumatically filled pieces of rubber should feel like without going from the opposite ends of the spectrum. From, depending on the two hard plastic white wheels with plastic black rubber around them and the the, the metal braces that come out and come down. Now, I'm afraid that for too long, God's church has depended on the training wheels. And we are in a position where the training wheels are going to come off And when the training wheels come off, I'm concerned that some people's view of God will be such that he will release them from the journey of learning how to balance through the difficult days of trauma and conflict that are in front of us. I would suggest that we might be in the early days of the wheels getting ready to come off even now as we've watched a society wrestle and wrangle over what it means to trust God, cooperate as citizens, manage public health, and mitigate risk. And most of all, I would say, our big challenge in our society is how not to live afraid. Now, the Bible tells us at the end of time that people's hearts will be failing them from fear. I would suggest to you that a postmodern age cannot help but become more afraid because the best thing it can trust in is its own ideas, maybe even collectively so. But even those best collective efforts leave one depending on man's best wisdom. You know, we've gone through these last 16 months where we've had all kinds of conspiracy theories postured relative to uh, the COVID experience. I appreciated very much what a doctor friend of mine said. He said, you don't need a conspiracy. All you need is human ineptness, and you can be where you're at. And I want us all to think about that just a little bit. It's not so much that we need to see a grand scheme of evil behind things, although the book of Revelation not only suggests but makes it clear there is an ultimate goal to rob God's people of their salvation and the world of hope. We just need to stop for a few minutes every once in a while and say, Lord, who do you want me to be? What would you have me do? So how does a nation or a family or an individual become afraid? And you say, well, Pastor, that's that's a foolish question. People are afraid automatically. And I would have to agree with you. The very first emotion in the Garden of Eden was fear. Nobody had to be trained to be afraid after they ate the fruit. Fear was just a function of spiritual natural law, disobedience, and rebellion to God produces fear. And the more you ride around, I don't see them so much here, maybe because there's not as much of a redneck element here in this part of the world, Uh, but it used to be I would often see pickup trucks with uh, vinyl decals stuck in the back window and a gun rack and it would say, no fear. Well, I have a theory. The more you project uh, with statements like that that you're not afraid might be a little indices that you actually are afraid. And uh, there's nothing wrong with a gun or anything else like that. Some of you own them. I hope that your trust is not in them. But I want to assure you our society has become more and more afraid, more fragile even in the midst of more scientific advancement and you might say societal ability and wealth to solve some problems. Another reason and another way people become afraid is that they're never tested or challenged. And for any of you that are parenting, you need to recognize that your journey is to give the appropriate opp- opportunity for people to grow. They are to be tested. They are to be challenged. And that challenging is actually the strengthening of the inner sinew the, of, of the nervous abilities or the directing out of that nervousness. The ability to say, I've done this before, which is why we cannot allow our children to be in charge of their own parenting. The absence of a father in the home has created a great amount of fear in our society. It's a dad's job, yes, to be part of the nurture team for sure, but it's also a dad's job to say, no, you can do this, and yes, you will do this, and no, you won't like it in the beginning, but on the other side, you will respect yourself and have a whole lot more self-confidence. There's also a financial overextension that is in part or large parts of American society. People have spent more than they should have. And so they are constantly living on the edge. I always appreciated Dr. James Dobson, child psychologist of a generation when I was raising my children. And uh, you know, he used that wonderful illustration of what guardrails can do to create security. If you've ever driven through the Rocky Mountains, most of the passengers in your car don't like for you to see how close to the edge you can drive as you're crossing Independence Pass or something else like that. But we have found ourselves goaded, encouraged, and actually affirmed into buying it today and paying for it two or three years from now. Living really close to the edge financially will take an awful lot of courage out of a person because they realize one little pinprick to the bubble of their financial life and they're, they're goners. And then of course we have the failure to prompt the prompts of faith. Now I will this morning arraign most of us, because unfortunately I've experienced this as well. But I'm also going to arraign entire churches before the the judgment bar of God on this one, because for the last sixty to seventy years, we have lived in the largest financial expansion of opportunity in the modern world, and so how is it that we should come in the 21st century? 70 years 75 years plus after the end of a second world war where we were largely untouched economically how can we come to the place two generations after the greatest generation and find churches barely existing it the 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 responsibility the culpability for this must lay squarely at the feet of Pastors, and elders and parents who have squandered wealth and opportunity on themselves and forgotten there's a world to win and that the earth is not supposed to go to hell in a handbag. Yes, those elders and those deacons and those deaconesses and those preachers who were too afraid to inconvenience the collective whole and remind them that their wealth is a stewardship for the saving of man. And while they are privileged to enjoy those blessings in measure, they are held in trust. And when an entire nation, entire churches, and entire families can squander the responsibility and the privileges and provision that come with it, they would find themselves afraid. Living life on your training wheels is not a good way to live. You don't ride training wheel bikes when you're 25 years old. And yet I'm afraid that Adventist adolescence might be a phenomena that has perpetuated itself. Yay might be too much, too great of a moniker for the progression of our collective well-being and our collective thinking and spiritual processes as a whole and then of course lastly and by no way exhaustively I would suggest that sequestering yourself to receive and be benefited primarily by your blessings mainly for yourself is not too different from what I've just been speaking about Egypt in the rearview mirror it's normal to be afraid I'm gonna tell you before we're done how not to be afraid I'm gonna explain it exceptionally practical I want to start this morning by looking at the life of Moses. Turn back to the book of Exodus. And I'm going to start by telling you the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And if you came from a home where everybody was afraid and nobody ever took a risk, it's very likely that you're living that way today. And you may have taught it to your children and your grandchildren. And it's very possible today that the concept of leaving Egypt in the rearview mirror is as about unpalatable to you as it was to Mrs. Lot. Before fire fell on the five cities of the plain. But today is an opportunity, friends, for you to leave behind those things that make you trepidatious and embrace those things that make you a threat to the enemy and a hope to mankind without God. Exodus chapter 2, now a man, verse 1, from the house of Levi, went and married a daughter of Levi. I preached a sermon not too long ago called Let the Righteous Women Rise Up, and I focused on Shipra and Pua and on this man's mother. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Isn't every baby beautiful? At least to the mama all right they have to grow into beauty for the rest of us but when she could hide him no longer she got him a wicker basket covered it over with tar and pitch and then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the nile and she even had a plan that would go with it this lady was a brave woman the apple didn't fall far from the tree when moses found himself cradled in the arms of one who took such great risk float that boat mama right into the presence of the princess And take a risk and see if she turns on you and your daughter or if God turns her heart towards you. You see, friends, she understood deliverance was coming and she knew that surrendering her child to the murder of a murderous regime was evil and wrong. And she risked herself, us not knowing what kind of threat was on her, but certainly some. And yes, Jochebed gives to Moses that which she had practiced throughout her life. Now, you may say to yourself, well, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, and I am just a tad bit prone to fear all the time. Well, I want to give you good news. Paul tells us in the New Testament that you can be grafted into a new tree, and that's exactly what I'm here to do this morning. I'm out to challenge and call and encourage all of us. And by the way, even as I'm preaching here, I'm looking out at people who have done this, and I want to tell you how proud I am in the name of Jesus for this church We've gone from barely existing financially ourselves to having the ability to do a few things. And I'm looking at different ones of you who have gotten outside your comfort zone. And as that... that. That little girl from Michigan City years ago who went to India with me said, she said, when you get outside of your comfort zone, you step into God's comfort zone. And I want to assure you this morning, friends, she was as poor as poor could be, but she watched God work over and over. And today she works for our very own North American division, praise the Lord. Grafted into a different tree. There was something noble in Moses, you have to admit it, and there was something amazing about what his mother did. His mother put into his mind that which the book Education says must come into the minds of all of our children. She says on page 17, let them. talking about the young people. Contemplate the great facts of duty and destiny, and the mind will expand and strengthen. And instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men strong to think and to act. Listen, we got plenty of strong thinking in some senses going on. Maybe not always even along the right vein. But we need men who are masters, she says, not slaves of circumstance who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and the courage of their convictions. An interesting word in this moment in earth's history as people are losing their jobs and their educational opportunities over personal religious conviction. I'm here to tell you today, Jochebed should breathe hope into every single parent listening in this postmodern age on the cusp Of societal implosion. How long are we going to go before people can sit at home getting money and they won't go out and work? How long will we go when just an employee showing up three or four days out of the week is considered a good employee? We're in trouble. We're in big trouble. And somewhere down the road, we're going to have a reset. And it's not the great economic reset necessarily, although that's probably coming too. But we're in trouble because we have a society that abandoned the law of God, the discipline, and the devotion to God. And we've now got a society that's teetering exceptionally close to caving in on itself under the weightiness of dysfunction and addiction. Listen, friends. Moses walked into the courts of Pharaoh at age 12 and he walked out at age 40. Actually, he ran away at some point in time because he had followed the contemplation of his duty and his destiny. You have a child in this day and age and you're worried about how they're going to turn out, you must sow the seeds of duty and destiny into their minds. They weren't called just to experience the great American dream, stand on the shoulders of their denomination in these great educational institutions or their parents. They have a duty and a destiny not unlike that of Moses. They are to lead an entire world to hope and deliverance from the oppressive powers of our age. And for Moses to grow up in the palace of the king and not be conformed to the mindset of the Egyptians is nothing short of a miracle, it's an answer to prayer on behalf, on behalf of Jochebed, and it's an answer in direct re- regard to her instilling what his real purpose in life was. And it worked. And even though Moses made colossal mistakes, you know, Moses, I, I, I don't fault Moses for anything, not a single thing. I look at the chapters of his life and it gives me hope. But I don't fault him for one thing, You know, when you're young, 40, back then, he lived to be 120 and would have kept going. 40 was still in that first third of his life. And he had that youthful understanding. It wasn't a mature, developed concept of how central God was going to be to this thing. So when he killed the Egyptian taskmaster, he thought he was doing a good thing. But the Spirit of Prophecy will point out that so much of his thoughts were focused about so much of what he could do and the centrality of his giftedness and his education. I don't hold much against Moses. I look back at my own life when I was in my early 20s and 30s and it's like, how much of what I was doing was built around the idea of how much I could do? And any honest person that doesn't do that kind of thinking needs to stop. Maybe today will be a good day and do it. But I want to tell you something. Moses went 40 years into another module of training. Short-sighted mortals would have dispensed with that 40 years of training, she writes, amidst the mountains of Midian, deeming it a great loss of time. But infinite wisdom placed him, who was to be the mighty statesman, the deliverer of his people from slavery, in circumstances during this period, to develop his honesty. In other words, he got to the place where he could look back and say, I shouldn't have killed that guy. His forethought... His faithfulness, and now we start getting into some of the real dynamics of leadership, his caretaking, his ability to identify himself with the necessities of his dumb charge, those animals, those to whom God has entrusted important responsibilities have not been brought up in ease and luxury. The noble prophets, the leaders and the judges of God's appointment have been those whose characters were formed by the stern realities. Of life. And then a little bit more here from Ministry of Healing. He learned to care for the weak, to nurse the sick, to seek after the strain, and to bear with the unruly, to tend the lambs, and to nurture the old and the feeble. In other words, God would give Moses the essential training for every parent, every pastor, every elder, and that was he was going to make Moses a shepherd. A shepherd. All of God's great leaders have either started out as shepherds or ended up as shepherds. But there's something about love to those dumb animals. And by the way, friends, don't be too inconvenienced to have pets in your home. Those dumb animals that aren't quite as dumb. Of course, that's a phrase that relates to their ability to talk mainly. And yet God was developing in this man things that were yet... Undeveloped and prepare him to care for people in the same way. Turn over to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, our scripture reading. What an amazing component of God's wonderful patience in dealing with his people. We've skipped over chapter 3, where God is meeting Moses at the burning bush, and here we are in a dialogue. Then Moses said, verse 1 What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say the lord has not appeared to you now there's that forethought coming out leaders think about what could turn out in the future and they anticipate it he's doing that then the lord said to him what's in your hand he said a staff throw it on the ground he threw it on the ground it became a serpent he tells him to pick it up by the tail the worst possible place to grab a serpent he does it though well i want you to see about moses in this segment of the scriptures is number one god's amazing patience. He's not in a hurry. He's appeared. It's clear that a divine manifestation, a uh, a divine uh, revelation is before Moses, and God is willing to be as patient in the development of this leader as he needs to be. And I want you to understand, if God's calling you to do something today, especially if someone listening to me here today is called to make a difficult decision, especially if someone here today is being called into the ministry. You need to understand there is a natural reluctance in the heart of someone who understands what might be involved. God's not put off by that. I've told you before I ran from my call. I hate to say it, but when I look at the life of Moses when he finally learns something It's like he realizes he's not up to this. This is really more than he can handle. But God is willing to accept that. He is very patient. Can you say amen? If he's prompting you to something, he's very patient. He's actually very compassionate, for he knows our frame. He knows that we're but dust. Skipping down, verse 8. If they do not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, that they may believe the first witness of the believe the witness of the last sign. Now, if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. So, what we see is sticking your hand in your bosom and bringing out leprous and sticking it back in and seeing it cleansed like this pink skin of a, a little baby or water on dry ground. God is very patient and very compassionate. And God makes provision, patience, compassion, and provision. These are wonderful attributes of of a parent, wonderful attributes of God. But something changes. Then Moses said to the Lord, verse 10, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in my past, Nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, we still have patience, compassion, and provision going on here. Who's made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf? Or seeing or blind? Is it not the Lord? Now then the Lord said, I even I. Here we go. We got Isaiah, is it chapter 40 or 43? I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I want to hear the overtones here. Now then, I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. So the great creator of the cosmos, whose handiwork he's looked him up into for the last four decades, is saying, the one who put the, the sinew and the muscles together on the, on the face, on the skull, I know how to make this work. Verse 13. But he said, please, Lord, now, Send the message by whomever you will, a.k.a. somebody else. Thank you, no thank you. Now, I need you to understand, parents, and I need all of my parishioners and my brothers and sisters in the Lord to understand that, I mean, there are some of you listening to me who think that anger is the original and ultimate unforgivable sin. Now, we know the anger of man doesn't lead to righteousness, But I want to tell you, the person that's the most angry in the Bible, if you want to study it, is God himself. And he's not the sinners in the hands of an angry God like Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher. No, 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 no. But I want you to know something. Uh, Some of you got disadvantaged educations when you were little because you didn't have a Jetty Kelly in your life who made you do some of the things you needed to do. But I'm here to tell you, in spite of God's patience and compassion and provision, there is a moment in which God says, okay now, we've crossed a line and all we have operative here is self-centeredness, lack of trust, and an unwillingness to obey. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses and he said, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. In effect, what God is saying is, if you won't let me do this through you and you don't really believe I can do it through you, I guess I'll have to go to your brother to be your spokesman. I can do it that way. Verse 15, you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I, even I, will be with your mouth. It's really quite an interesting window But I'm here to tell you today, friends, there is nothing worse in a congregational experience or a family experience than a leader who is afraid. As a matter of fact, you cannot lead when you are afraid. Fear must give way to some greater sense of God's presence and provision to a duty and a destiny. And becoming unafraid is an important journey. But when we think about leaders who are afraid, I want you to understand, you can start out afraid and become brave, or you can start out brave and become afraid. I want you to think about Saul, who will rescue the men of Jabesh, but in the end won't go up against the giant. I want you to think about the fact that in his humility, he was willing to trust and do, and in his pride and pomp, he was not. When he had much to protect, he wouldn't deliver it, to the vicissitudes of risk but when he had nothing to protect and when he was a man small in his own eyes he would do what his son would do with his armor bearer while everybody else hid out in the caves. Let's think about how you go to becoming unafraid. Number one if you'd like to become less afraid or unafraid you have to start by making little sacrifices. Courageous leadership is a big Sacrifice and courageous leadership is really love. You take the steps of duty that are in front of you wherever you're at, and what you find is is that these little duties done in love to the people around you prepare you for bigger duties. Now, parents, listen to me. Laziness is a superior problem to the functionality of your child in their future. Laziness and fear are twin brothers, or sisters, you might say. Because laziness is a form of selfishness, and selfishness and love are opposites. Bravery is a function of love. Fearful people focus on themselves. Laziness is a form of self-focus. Selfishness and love are opposites. But what happens is, is that when a child or a person chooses as an adult to take little steps of loving service... This little step of loving service drives out. It's a function of the cross in daily living. It drives out that self-centeredness by little choices, weeding out from the heart the things that would make it self-focused and consequentially afraid. But loving service manifests itself in little things in preparation for a higher order, Of loving service. Being a leader without fear requires the ability to take risks. Those risks are taken when one discerns the call of love. Love. Accept the responsibility God lays on you, number two. Think about Moses. Now this is not going to be very complimentary. But this is the fact. At this moment in Moses' life at 80 years of age, it's in effect he's saying, God, I've gotten pretty comfortable with my life. Those people down there in slavery, find somebody else to do this. Is it really possible that Moses could gravitate into a posture of comfort not too terribly unlike ours? And we can find ourselves as reluctant to sacrifice and take the risk, just as he was. This is not a complimentary picture of one of the mightiest men who ever lived. But he got to where he was really quite all right with Jethro and the family and, and his wife, Sipporah. And he really had a pretty okay moment. It's not the same Moses who will, not too many years later, be saying, Lord, blot my name out of the book. If you can't take them, then don't take me. But I want you to see that's what happens. The thing that changes Moses and the thing that will change us is that when God lays a responsibility on you, you don't make a bunch of excuses. And if you do, you finally succumb to the presence of God and you are willing to do what he says. This is how you get brave because God's the quintessential parent. He's the actual prominent position of the ultimate parent of the race. And he is providing and he is compassionate and he is patient. But there comes a point in time when he says, All right, enough excuses already. Either you will or you won't do this. I've made provision. Moses says, I will. And consequently, he starts becoming the man minus the modalities of his youth, he starts becoming the man he's supposed to be. And he ends up being the most noble person, perhaps in all, or one of the most noble persons in all of the Old Testament. The third thing you need to know if you want to leave behind your fears is pray. Pray your way forward. Pray your way out of trouble. Pray for position, provision. Pray your way through your successes. The spirit of prophecy will tell us there's two pitfalls. Doubt and overconfidence some of you are over here you're on the doubting side some of you are over here like moses in his first 40 years you're overconfident both of them are a setup but i want to tell you when you take that first step the only way to get rid of your fears and i counsel this with different individuals starting with my family man when it's really hanging on me when i'm feeling like i've i'm i'm i'm, I, I'm not up to this thing i go find somewhere there's different times you'll find me kneeling in this very sanctuary and i'm praying lord I need help. And I want to tell you something. His ear is ever tuneful to the supplication of his children. And if I know how to give good gifts, he wants to give better. But most of all, he wants to make us strong in a difficult age. The last thing is never, never, never surrender your spiritual or personal integrity. You must always stay true to what you know is true or you will not make it across the last link in the bridge of deliverance. The devil's always offering you a parachute. Jump out of the plane now before it finishes riding through this rough storm. Slip, slip this life jacket on and jump into the river before you cross the bridge the rest of the way. You must never, never, never surrender your best understanding of what God said to do, your spiritual integrity, or your personal integrity. I'm pretty proud of this church i'm thinking of a mother right now as a matter of fact as i'm preaching it's been the ladies it's another mother that i was thinking of earlier i'm thinking of a mother who had to go up against her teenage child and tell her you're going to a different school this year it's a church school this mother told me this story oh the daughter didn't want to go adolescent And the mother, you could tell, she was wrestling with The mother was willing to work extra jobs. She and her husband were together. And fortunately, the mother prevailed. I want to tell you something. Within three days of that child being put into church school, the child who had resisted her came to her and said, Thank you. Listen. You don't get those thank yous that quick all the time. But this morning, friends, I want you to know something. God understands the power of encouragement. He's told us to encourage each other. And this morning, I want to encourage you. You don't have to be, you don't have to be led by your fears. The way your fears go away is to know that anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go. And I want to end on that subject matter. It was Jesus who actually walked into the chasm of darkness and the only person he knew to trust in because he wrote, he directed the writing of the scripture that said, don't put your trust in man. The only person Jesus knew to trust in didn't seem to be there. He walked into that dark valley and called out and no one answered. So the prayer line that you and I can trust in that will never be gone for you appeared to not be working for him. I'll tell you, if there's one thing that keeps a leader going, sometimes I just say, Lord, show me a little window of what you're doing. I need a ray of hope. The power of hope is colossal. And the battle against hopelessness is also colossal. Jesus walked into the clutches of Satan and he's the only person for whom the ravages of Satan were unmitigated. And while it was not the literal fingers of Satan on the throat of Jesus, it was the well-schooled hands of the Romans and the vicious, shriveled little hearts of the Pharisees and the abandonment of his friends. Yes, the bravest person to ever walk the face of this planet is God himself. And should we be surprised? Because his love for us was greater than his love for himself. And be willing to be a man of no reputation. He was the humblest person to ever walk this sod. He took up all the little duties. He'd never surrendered his personal integrity. He didn't stand on the sidelines while others were putting their face into the wind. He came along to mary magdalene while she's pouring out all that perfume and judas is at the table whispering to john or james or somebody what a waste and jesus speaks up in the last sabbath the last week of his life and he looks at judas and he says the first and final rebuke leave her alone no our dear jesus Would play into the devil's conspiracy of one of the twelve betraying him into the hands of his own nation and the Romans. But Jesus never left somebody by themselves to face the fury of evil. He was the consummate, courageous deliverer. And this morning, he's raising up others just like him. This morning, friends, I'm here to tell you we've been through a colossal lockdown globally we've wrestled with what it means to worship and do God's work in the midst of risk some have failed some have succeeded as of late we're arguing you could say and it is a legitimate discussion inside our church as to whether or not people can and should be forced to receive medical procedures they don't want. And by the way, almost 17,000 people have signed the Liberty of Conscience document, and I'm inviting every single person who hears this message to go to our website and sign it too, because whether you believe in receiving or not receiving, most of us, I'm quite certain, believe that it should be a personal decision, especially with all that we know about the disease today. And I'm going to challenge pastors right now because that document's been signed by almost 3,000 medical professionals. Where are the pastors? Only 1,200 have signed it as fellow colleagues of mine. It's time for us to catch up with the medical professionals who have said we are standing with those who believe they should have the ability to choose for themselves. Yes, it is an age that requires a bit of love, humility, and courage. May God bless His people as they rise up to it. Amen.